Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father and our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we're going to take a look at the last number of verses from um, our Acts reading for today. It's a text that marks a uh, defining moment in the history of what we know as the Christian church today. Now what happened in today's story kind of took this burgeoning uh, Jesus movement uh, into a whole new direction. Or some people say it took it to a whole new level. It's kind of amazing. What began as kind of a small little sect of Judaism uh, was to become its own entity and the primary vehicle uh, through which God was going to work throughout the rest of history. Now, you could actually say that Acts 10 shows us that the Jesus movement in the first century was not intended to be kind of a little single mom-and-pop shop in some little uh, corner of a suburb of Jerusalem, but was to become an international conglomerate of communities of faith of all shapes, sizes, cultures, and styles that today span the globe. When I read through this text, I thought to myself how this challenges me, even yet today as a pastor, in some of the things that I do uh, not only in local congregations, but in other parachurch ministries. It kind of moves us all, actually, uh, to move beyond this kind of small-minded, limited thinking of mere mortals. And instead, it really challenges us to move toward this all-encompassing, unlimited thinking of God. So today we're going to talk about living a life without borders and developing a without borders kind of philosophy of ministry, not only for a church, not only for a community, but also for us as individuals. Now let me give you a little bit of a backstory to our text this morning. Peter was praying on the rooftop of a house. Uh, he had a vision of this large sheet coming down from heaven, and in that large sheet uh, were all kinds of four-footed animals. Uh, there were reptiles and birds, and in other words, all of the animals that Peter, as a Jew, was forbidden to eat in his Jewish diet, and yet there still came a voice that said, Peter, kill and eat. Well, Peter probably almost had a heart attack. It was not quite the Sanford and Son, you know, it's me, Elizabeth, I'm coming home. But he said, Lord, you know this is wrong, because I've never eaten anything unclean. I've never, and I never will. And then the voice spoke to him again and said, Peter, don't call anything impure that God has made clean. Now this happened to him three times. And when this is done, there was a knock at the door and he found three men who wanted him to visit the house of a rather devout Gentile by the name of Cornelius. And Cornelius wanted to hear more about this Jesus. And for many reasons, Jews were not allowed, first of all, to enter the house of a Gentile. And they didn't want to become ritually unclean and do even worse by eating with Gentiles. Now, Peter realized, though, there was a connection between this large sheet and all of these unclean animals that God said were clean and a Gentile visiting him at his door who wanted to hear more about Jesus. And so when he got here, our text tells us that he told Cornelius and his household all there was to know about the Savior. It's at this point that Acts tells us that all heaven broke loose. I would have loved to have been there that day. I mean, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius. 
his entire family, and they began speaking in tongues and praising God, and Peter and his little entourage with him were probably having their second cardiac arrest of the week. But then Peter suddenly realized these men have received the Holy Spirit just the same way that we got it on Pentecost. Clearly God is behind this movement. What prohibits us from baptizing them right now in the name of Jesus? And that's exactly what they did. They baptized Cornelius and his entire household. Now, this may seem like a rather simple little conversion story, although it's pretty spectacular in a way, but it's much more than that. Because in the very next chapter, Peter gets hauled back to deal with the religious heat of his day. It's kind of like being taken back to synodical headquarters and to find out what it is you're doing out in Nixon, Missouri. Uh, But he was called to account for his actions, and evidently the word had gotten back, that he had eaten with a Gentile in a Gentile's house and had fellowship with these people and actually baptized them. Well, Peter told the story to James, the brother of Jesus, and, and other people who would have been there, and the church leaders concurred that, yes, this was a move of God, and we need to get on board with it. See, at that moment, the church, this brand new church became a church without borders and a ministry without limits. Now, you're very familiar with these Bible passages, I'm sure. Maybe some of you actually have them as your confirmation verse. Matthew 28, therefore go and make disciples of, what, all nations. And as I understand my Greek language, I think the word is technoi, it really means all ethnic groups. It's not just talking specific countries, but even ethnic groups within those countries. And one of my other favorite passages is from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, and by the way, witness is martyrial, which means martyr. You're going to be my martyrs as you go out, where? To Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So this is what... This is what Jesus had in mind for his disciples that day, his followers. And that's where you and I are called to pick it up in the year 2018. And so today I want to just talk to you a little bit from this text about living a life without borders. And as we move toward this idea, I want to make three observations on this text. Here's observation number one. While we're always looking for a way to exclude other people, God is always looking for a way to bring us together. Now, we know that there was some racism at work here in the first century, as well as cultural elitism. The idea among many people in the first century were that Jews were better than non-Jews. That non-Jews were dirty people, they were immoral people, they were barbaric people, and they were uncouth. They were the hillbillies of the promised land, you might say. Now, there was the idea that Jews, simply by virtue of being a Jew, well, they were favored by God. And and that Gentiles, simply by virtue of their, I guess you call it their Gentileness, uh, were, to put it lightly, less favored by God, if not completely despised. I want you to look at this prayer on the screen. It's an ancient prayer that was prayed by devout Jews, and they would recite this prayer, which you'll see on the screen any moment, every day. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, for not having made me a slave. And you'll love this one. Blessed are you, O God, King of the universe, for not having made me a... 
woman. See, they believed as Jewish men <clears throat> that they were a little bit better than slaves, Gentiles, and of course, <clears throat> women. Now, as we all know, uh, elitism wasn't exclusively something the Jews owned. Uh, on the other side of the coin, there were a lot of other people, for example, the Romans, who thought that they were a whole lot better than any stinking Jew that they had to take care of. And this attitude has been seen all the way through history. It goes all the way back to the days in Egypt. It has always been this way. I mean, every tribe, every race, every nation has looked for ways to exclude other people in their midst in their, from their so-called elite group. It happens today not only across racial lines, but even within races themselves. I mean, one group will look down on another group because they're, well, uh, maybe their accent's a little bit different. Uh, the shade of their skin is different. Uh, where their ancestors was born was different. Uh, whether they were actually raised in a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod or not. See, we're always looking for a way to kind of push people out into separate little groups. When it isn't based on race, it is sometimes based on socioeconomic factors. They're not in the same class we are. They don't live in the same kind of neighborhood we are. They're just plain simple, not one of us. Now, the message of the gospel and the goal of the church is that we are not separated. Uh, according to us and them, we are one in Christ. Uh, there's no us and them, there's only we. Uh, Paul says to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now imagine when Paul said that, there must have been Jews who had a heart attack again. Because remember, they've been praying this, we're better than Gentiles, we're better than slaves, we're better than women. And Paul says, no, Gentiles, women, men, you name it, we're all on the same level. Now, this next thing, I don't know how many of you remember this. Some of you remember the Dr. Seuss story about the Sneetches. Okay, a couple, okay, one young person and a mom, I think. How many people have ever heard this story? Oh gosh, you people have been deprived. I remember, I, I love Dr. Seuss. Uh, there's these funny shaped yellow creatures and they were all yellow, except that some of them had, um, had a green star on their belly. And so those with the stars uh, believed that they were better than those people without stars. But then along came a rather enterprising businessman named Sylvester McMonkey McBean. That's truly Dr. Seussian. Uh, with a special machine that could, for the price of $3, put a star on the belly of the Sneetches who had no star... And suddenly, everybody had a star, making the original belly-starred snitches no longer all that special. But then, Mr. McBean uh, introduced another machine that only for the price of $10 could remove the green star. And all the snitches who had originally had stars were now paying to have the stars removed. And... and, and they, they just, at one point in the story, it's really kind of hilarious because Sneetches are running back and forth from machine to machine to either have a star put on their belly or having a star taken off their belly, 
all the time trying to keep up with whatever was fashionable in that society today. And meanwhile, Mr. McBean is doing what? He's counting his money and enjoying every minute of it. Now, while I would encourage you to read your scriptures today, go hunt up uh, Dr. Seuss and read that whole story. You'll enjoy it. Now, when we read that story, when you hear that story for the first time, you kind of go, well, that's one of the most stupid things I've ever heard. No kidding. It is. It, we can spot their foolishness just like that. But we're not always able to see that same foolishness in our own lives, and so we consider to find ways how we can separate ourselves from other people. Now, sadly, I have seen this across Christian communities in our attitudes, believe it or not, across denominational lines. I will not mention the person's name, but I had a LCMS pastor friend one time um, refer to another church in our community as, quote, one of those seeker-sensitive atrocities. Now, I got a really hard time with somebody like that, and I was probably less than kind in my response to him, and I have sought forgiveness over the years several times about that. But I just have a hard time calling another faith community that's preaching Jesus Christ as an atrocity just because their style of doing worship is a little bit different than the way you and I do it. See, one of the things that we can learn here from Acts 10 is that while we are always looking for ways to exclude other people, God is urging us to bring everybody together. So I might as well turn to a Methodist to help us out. John Wesley. He said, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. May we not be of one heart, though we are not of one opinion. Without all doubt, we may. Herein, all the children of God may unite, notwithstanding these small, smaller differences. See, this is really the way we ought to do church, and it's really the way that we as individuals need to treat one another, uh, with an attitude that says, I consider myself better than no one else. We're all the same in the eyes of God. Well, the last times I was down at Angola Prison, one of the inmates came up to me and he says, Doc, you know, one thing that I really love about you, and he says, and it's something that all the other guys really love about you too, he said, you might never guess what that is. And I said, the fact that we give you a free Bible? <laughs> no. Uh, that we give you uh, candy? Uh, no. He said, you treat everybody here the same. And we appreciate that. You don't look at us as any different, probably, than the people you see on a Sunday morning in your own church. That's a humbling thing to hear. Let's take a look at observation number two. While we're always looking to keep God in a box, God insists on moving outside the box. I don't know if you ever figured that one out. Uh, there were many first century Christians uh, who could quote for you chapter and verse why you had to follow the Old Testament diet uh, and the rituals and its customs. Uh, they had scripture to back it up, and their attitude was, God said it, uh, that settles it. The problem is that they were being very selective in their use of scripture, uh, conveniently overlooking texts that indicated that some of the Old Testament rituals and stuff were bound in time and limited in scope, that though these things were part of the small picture, they were not part of God's big picture. I mean, look at what David says in Psalm 40. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. 
But you have given me an open ear. Burnt offerings and sin offering you have not required. See, he was giving us an insight into a bigger picture of what a relationship with God is all about. See, God reveals us, reveals himself to us in scripture. That's, that's why I, I want to always come back and just deal with what God's word actually has to say. But I want you to understand something very important and I want you to, to listen carefully so that you understand what I'm about to say and it's this. Scripture does not tell us everything there is to know about God. And I say that for maybe one simple reason is that it's impossible for us to really know and understand everything there is to know about God. Right now we see through a glass kind of dimly, but we're going to see it someday face to face. But, you know, you can take a simple piece of machinery. For example, you can take a can opener or a computer or even a car and you can ultimately know everything there is to know about that piece of machinery. You can define it, you can describe it, you can put it all in the box, but it will never move outside the boundaries of that box because you know everything there is to know about that thing. I mean, you're not going to open up that can opener box someday and find out that it has become a jackhammer overnight. Uh, It is not going to become a reading lamp or a set of pearls. It will always stay the same as long as it's inside that box. Now, I say that because sometimes I think we try to put God in a box. We try to define God according to a list of laws and attributes that we have come up with, and we try to reduce this unknowable God into a concept that we can wrap our pea-sized little human brains around. And when we do that, then when we got God all defined this way, then with great authority uh, that we say God does this, and God does that, and God doesn't do this, and God doesn't really, he's never going to do this. And so we kind of got him tucked away in our convenient little box that is small enough for our feeble little minds to comprehend. Now here's the problem with that make God in a box idea, is when you put God in a box, soon you're going to find out that all you've got left is an empty box. Because God, our God, is too great to be contained and comprehended. Now we just need to get used to the idea that sometimes God operates way outside the box. I've learned that in my almost 35 years as a pastor. The little box I'd like to have him in, God says, no, I'm over here. See, now those people in the first century, they might have said, well, God will never give the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. Others might have said, well, maybe he will give them the Holy Spirit, but only if they convert to Judaism first and then follow all the laws like the dietary laws and circumcision. And still others might have said, you know, and even if he does take them into the church, they will always be second class members of our congregation. But what they did not anticipate was this. God planned to do something outside their box, outside the box of their limited understanding, something far greater than they could possibly imagine. Now, here's what I'm getting at in this text. God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. There's no doubt about that. He has revealed to us so much about his plan for human history. But we don't know all there is to know about God, and we cannot know 
all that there is to know about God. Now, because of that, uh, sometimes he moves outside the box of our understanding. Have you ever stepped back from a situation and said, Woo, God, what were you thinking? I mean, I've had that happen every once in a while. I never saw that coming. He stretches us to take a fresh look at his word, ourselves, and the world we, we live in. See, God is not a machine. Uh, while we try to find ways to make him predictable, we come to the fact that God himself is not very predictable. Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. You ever think about that? Your thoughts and the ways that you think things ought to happen, they may not mesh at all with what God is thinking. I posted that little comment on my Facebook page the other day, and I immediately got a reply back from a friend of ours. Nancy knows who she is, Lisa Meyer. And Lisa said, when I read that, the very first thing I thought about was another Bible passage. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's from Second Chronicles, where it says, but who is able to build him, speaking of God, a house, in other words, a big box, seeing that the heavens and the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. In other words, who are we to put God into the box when even heaven can't hold him in there? Here's the third observation. While we're looking for a way to get God on board with our plans, God is calling us to get on board with his plan. In the first century, God had a plan for his church. And guess what? God has a plan for this church as well. God has a plan for the church in Springfield. I'm going to be preaching at a church in Lincoln, Illinois, in a couple of weeks, God has a plan for that church as they celebrate their 50 years as a congregation. God has a plan for the very first church that I pastored many years ago. They'll be celebrating 150 years next year. God has a plan for each and every church that preaches Christ and Him crucified. Now, there may be some people in that day whose attitude was, well, let's just keep this local. I mean, let's maintain our ties to Judaism and let's ask God to bless our little group right here where we are, let's not try to take it any further than this. We kind of like the people who are here. It makes us feel very comfortable. We don't have to be looking around every week and seeing people we don't know. Gosh, that sounds awful familiar, doesn't it? I can't remember where I've heard that before. Pastor Peckman, have you ever heard anything like that in your life? <laughs> That's amazing. But see, God has a different plan. His plan was that the church of Jesus would take this message and, and the gospel throughout the world and throughout history, crossing every boundary, breaking every barrier, so that every last single man, woman, and child could experience new life in Jesus. And see, after the events of the, this story, after it took place, when the Gentile household was saved and baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit, the leaders of their church uh, faced a choice. They could either resist what God was doing, or they could get on board and, and enjoy the ride. And praise God, they, they made the right choice. I mean, they got on board. But I want to suggest to you that every believer and every church will at one time or another have similar choices. Are we going to do this our way? Or are we open to a move of God that could take us in a different direction? Are we asking God to get on board with our plans? I mean, do you do that? You make your little list and then you say, here, God, 
bless this. I got my plans made. Please bless it. Or are you willing to say, Lord, here's a blank piece of paper. Tell me what's next. Are we seeking God so that we can know his will and hear what his spirit is saying? And are we willing to follow wherever he's going to lead us? Now, I'm going to admit to you that I struggle with this at times. I'm a fairly organized person. I kind of like to know what I'm doing next. My sermon for Springfield next week is already done. My sermon for the following week in Lincoln, Illinois is already, I like to have all of that done. And so sometimes I just kind of work ahead without asking God, what do you think I ought to say? And sometimes God just says, well, that's an interesting sermon you wrote. (laughs) I'm not sure that that fits with what is going on the following week. Lo and behold, today would be abruptly the 60th anniversary of my confirmation. Isn't that interesting? I told my wife, 60? I thought I was only 58 myself. You know, but God sometimes, you know, and so lo and behold, what is the psalm for next Sunday? It's my confirmation verse. And it was if God say, you know, I know you had an idea to do this, but maybe you ought to go back and look at your confirmation verse one more time. I had a message all figured out for Pentecost Sunday in three weeks. Then I got a copy of their church newsletter and found out I'm their special guest speaker at the 50th anniversary of their church. And their motto is something completely different than what I was going to do. And it's like God was like, see what happens when you get ahead of yourself and you just don't wait? Yeah. Sometimes I turn around and I say, God, are you keeping up with me? Come on, buddy. (laughs) And God is going, I'm over here. (laughs) Why don't you come and join me? See, I think we all have this tendency. We make plans and then we ask God to bless this little thing that we want to do. And and at the same time, he's basically saying, I had something bigger in mind. The Bible passage, you see, it says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. That's from Isaiah 43. See, there is one thing that you can be absolutely positively sure of. You can take this to the bank. The plans that we make for ourselves are absolutely no match for the plans that God has for us, either as a church or as individuals. That's why Paul could also say in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power, that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That passage will appear. Okay, maybe not. Maybe just put that up there. Now, you might say these three observations I shared, how do these all come together with one idea? Well, if you go to the next screen, here it is. Uh, God is calling us to live a life without borders. No borders in love. No borders in faith. No borders in obedience. In other words, what God is calling each and every one of us, and even us as a congregation, is this. There's no limit to how far we will go in terms of love. There's no limit to how far we will go in terms of faith and obedience in order to reach others for Jesus the Messiah. When you find yourself working in that arena, friends, you're not going to see any borders. May God bless us in this pursuit of taking the gospel 
not just to all nations, but to all people. Amen.